Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where it is you are listening. This is Dan Turchin, host of AI in the Future of Work, and the CEO of Insight Finder, the AI first system of intelligence for IT operations, and the executive chairman at PeopleRain, the AI platform for employee HR and IT service. Now, welcome back to another exciting week. As you know, we discuss the future of work every week here with CXOs and investors, with entrepreneurs, the ones who are defining the future of work. And we tend to focus on AI as it relates to automated decision-making, data, data hygiene, job creation, and oftentimes the ethical implications of autonomous labor. Now, a couple of key technologies that we haven't focused on in a while are IoT, the internet of things, and blockchain that are really part of the plumbing that's required to enable many of the workplace changes that we discuss frequently. For example, we've discussed ambient AI in offices to regulate things like temperature and conference rooms, and those require smart devices and sensor networks. Well, we've also discussed micropayments and transactions for everything from parking to contact tracing, all of which could be secured and tracked on a blockchain. Today, we're lucky to have a guest who has been on the ground floor of new technology in and around Silicon Valley as an investor, an analyst, and an operator for more than 25 years. He's an enthusiast around things related to edge computing, IoT, and blockchain, but frankly, he's been, uh, been, an, been an advocate and, uh, and, and an influencer when it comes to just about every technology. Philippe uh, most recently founded and is the CEO of Topio Networks, an industry catalyst that creates communities related to new technologies. Using AI, Topio tracks more than 40,000 technology trends and has created a network of more than 1.2 million tech and business users. Prior to Topio, Philippe was in similar roles at ReadWrite Labs and Spoke. He also served as a board member for quite some time at VentureBeat. We have so much to discuss today. This should be a good one. If you're looking for the next industry to disrupt, Without further ado, it's my pleasure to welcome Philippe Koss to the podcast. Philippe, welcome to the show. Why don't you start by uh, describing your background? Well, Dan, thank you so much for having me here and uh, glad, glad to be here, glad to be with you discussing all those, all those trends. Uh, just to give you a, a brief uh, background of myself, I'm an engineer by training and uh, I've been a venture capitalist my entire life, except uh, the last five where uh, I decided to become, uh, to go to the dark side and become an entrepreneur. Um, in the same way, you know, I'm, uh, I'm uh, originally from France. I spent uh, half of my life in Europe and half of my life in the United States as well. Um, I grew up in the 70s in, uh, in a region close to the German border called Lorraine, uh, which is very similar to uh, Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania. We were uh, very dependent on uh, steel and coal, uh, uh, but we also had uh, one of the top universities in France and in Europe, like uh, Carnegie Mellon. And the, regi the region declined very quickly, as Pittsburgh did in the 70s. And I became very interested in how to develop new ecosystem in regions like Pittsburgh and, and Lorraine, centered around technology, uh, hence my uh, interest for venture capital. And so, um, uh, you know, I'm also uh, very, since a very young age, I'm also uh, 
Uh, I've also been fascinated by media and, and radio broadcasts in particular. So uh, I started the radio broadcast when I was in engineering school, and the radio broadcast is still uh, is still in um, in activity now. Uh, and I've always uh, also, you know, since my very young age, I'm also. Uh, it's been very attractive to the U.S. I, I grew up close to a U.S. military base in France, uh, and I was fascinated by the Berlin airlift and the moon landing to a point that my uh, older brother was calling me Phil the American. And, I, you know, I was like seven or eight years old at the time. So here I am now in Silicon Valley uh, working on technology. Uh, I've been, as you said, a, a partner, managing partner of Venture Fund, raised about 500 million uh, over the course of, uh, of my tenure. Uh, the fund I was involved with were in the top decile of the industry, of their industry. I've spotted very early software as a service, and I'm, um, I've spotted very early open source as well. I'm, I'm very early stage investors investing in technologies and, and, and entrepreneurs at a, at a very young age. So, uh, so uh, thank you so much. Glad to have you here. Phil, Phil the American. I, yeah, I, I like exactly. That. I like that <laughs> <laughs> and now when I first started to get to know Topio, I was impressed by the, the team's use of AI to track technology trends. Maybe if you could share, what was the gap in the market that uh, led you to, to found Topio? Yeah, well, very, uh, very quickly, uh, you know, we, we, uh, if you remember right before Google, right, when you needed to have information, you would come in to, you know, have a business analyst who would go to a library or a documentation center and would study the question you had and to provide you with a report, right? So uh, along come Google, and now uh, you can ask the question, you can tap the question and get the information in real time, all the content you need for, uh, for the topics that you're researching for free. And if you look at 20 years later, if you look at the industry research, it's still antiquated like uh, it was before Google, except uh, the, the libraries or the documentation center are called the uh, industry research firm. And so when you have a business question, uh, you talk to a business analyst who is going to investigate the content available in industry research firms, write you a report, and then provide you with that, with that report. Uh, it's very costly. It's very lengthy. It's not updated in real time, and it breaks your flow of thinking because if you look at how you work with Google, you basically type your question and you refine your uh, your understanding based on the question you're asking and you have this this flow of juice of thinking of creative thinking that come from interacting with google well that's what we want to do for a business insight so we there are very basic questions that each entrepreneurs and each uh, market leaders are asking themselves it's about 80 percent of the questions that are being asked that uh, we should we should be able to answer in real time and and quickly and uh, and very uh, very cheaply and that's what we're um, we're aim to do. Uh, I I I, um, I I did uh, a lot of that work when I was at um, at uh, my venture firm working with uh, with analysts. Uh, so it was uh, in a way very expensive. And now with AI, we're able to provide the same type of business. Uh, insights at uh, at a fraction of the cost of what uh, a traditional industry research or platform like you know CB Insight or Gartner could do. So don't get me wrong, we are not saying we will reply we will replace industry research or we will replace CB Insight. We are just saying that we're building a, a new categories within uh, industry research, which is this access to those dynamic business insights that you can access in real time uh, when you need them at your fingertips. 
Now, I know you're a little biased, but uh, will there ever be a time when we can fully automate that process of generating business insights? I don't. I uh, I don't think so. It's it's uh, it's it's uh, it's a very tricky question uh, because uh, you're doomed if you say yes and you're doomed if you say no, right? So uh, in in the same way, uh, you know, nobody uh, envisioned uh, autonomous vehicles in our lifetime. <laughs> I think we are now seeing uh, that it could be possible and and it's going to be nef- definitely possible within our lifetime. Uh, the the way to think about the question though is that there are two type uh, two main functions to research. So one is uh, uh, you know mechanical, I would say, which is gathering the information, and the other is editorial, which is how to put this information in context. And this uh, this this editorial part is very uh, human-like. So it's very about uh, how somebody sees, uh, and it's very unique, so how somebody sees the market. And so I think the first part, the mechanical part, will be automated by AI, but, the, but you, you're, you're still going to need a research analyst to uh, provide the context that you need around the information. So, uh, uh, so innovation is... Uh, is accelerating right? and competition is happening at a faster pace now. I mean, look at what's happening with Tesla and Amazon. So, so uh, we need more research, more research rather than less. Uh, we need it more customized and with quicker turnaround uh, as the mindset uh, can change quicker. So, uh, so we, we need a combination of AI and, uh, and more uh, interesting uh, insights from a research analyst at the same time. Place a bet, what comes first? Fully autonomous vehicles on 101, or fully autonomous business insights. Uh, I would say uh, I would say uh, fully autonomous vehicle on one on one because the the act of driving is very mechanical. Uh, so I would think that uh, uh, driving is going to happen before business insight for sure. Maybe in the next conversation, we'll see how we're, we'll see how you're doing on that prognostication. I'm willing to take the bet. I'm willing to take the bet. There you go. No, uh, you, you're uh, you're very well known in uh, edge computing circles. Uh, describe what edge computing is all about, and maybe specifically, what are what's one or two of the most exciting companies that you've encountered that are tackling edge computing problems. Okay, so um, so very very uh, very succinctly, right? So what is happening is uh, is a fundamental shift, uh, and I've seen uh, one of those those shifts only three times in my entire life. So the first one was the emergence of PC. Uh, the second one was the emergence of the internet and uh, how. Uh, you know, as a human, we, we, we became connected to the internet, right? So, uh, you know, with PC first and then with mobile. And now we're getting to this third phase where we're connected all our environment to the internet, right? So all our objects, everything is now being connected to the internet. And, and with that, and with that, uh, what, with, with all those uh, objects being connected to the internet, you can do two things, right? So you gather information about themselves, but you also gather information about everything that is happening, uh, in uh, around them, right? So, uh, uh, so, uh, be- so, so it's not an old trend, right? It's something that started uh, about 20 years ago uh, with, uh, and, and be- even before then with RFID. Then it evolved uh, into what people talked about as in- Internet of Things, which was uh, uh, a, a, a still a very cloud-based model where, uh, you know, people were connecting, uh, were getting the information from the object 
we're sending all the objects to to the to the cloud, and then the cloud you would process all the information in the cloud, and then send the information back, send the insight back to whoever needed it. And basically, very quickly, people understood that that type of um, of model was too expensive. It didn't have the right the right type of latency, and it was not the right also level of data privacy. And so we needed a, 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 the same type of paradigm shift that happened in a, in the thousands where with open source software and commoditized platform where you know the, the 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 combination of open source software commoditized platform enabled the emerge the emergence of the cloud as a platform to uh, to distribute uh, to create and distribute application uh, we, we 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 saw the same thing happening for uh, for iot in the last two years where uh, in order to enable uh, the 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 right uh, Processing of information, the right processing of um, of um, uh, at the right level, people started to think about processing the information very close to the to the device, or even sometimes on the device, uh, and that's what we call edge computing. It's this process of of bringing the leveraging uh, processing power and storage power that is very close to the device, or even on the device, to to do things, um, and. Um, and with that, with, with this ability to process information there and then send only the insights that are required to the, to, the, to, the, to, the, to the cloud and then have the cloud send the information everywhere else, you get to a point where the, the cost of, uh, of, of bandwidth, the cost of processing, everything is being aligned, is cheap enough to, to show uh, an ROI and the, the level of latency you know, is down and and uh, and you get to the right level of privacy because the, the data stays where uh, where it's being produced. So it's a completely new, different paradigm, and it's about processing very close to uh, where the information is being created at the edge of the at the edge of the infrastructure, rather than centrally in the cloud. We essentially carry supercomputers in our pockets these days. Um, fast forward, let's say five years. Do you think that compute intensive tasks like say facial recognition or you know complex AI modeling will be capable of being performed on the device? I mean, uh, I mean, I, I would say uh, I, I would say it, it depends on the on the on the on the type of application, right? But uh, I mean, if you look at what uh, TinyML, which is uh, the, the the industry association that is looking at uh, you know really processing and, and training and inference at the at the, at the on the device side they are saying that uh, within two three years we should start seeing uh, stuff happening uh, on, on device that could be fairly disruptive so uh, i would think that uh, you know within the next 10 years you're going to see a lot of things happening on on the device themselves what's the first really innovative company that comes to mind that you think is making Good use of uh, edge computing capability. So, so uh, I mean, the, the thing that really excites me is uh, those companies that are trying to build uh, uh, some type of um, of um, uh, of um, le leveraging all the capability of the device around around the specific device to do uh, to, uh, to 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 perform more 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 tasks more computes. So uh, companies like Teneron, uh, Mythic, uh, the the companies that Steve Jurvetson invested in, uh, Halo or Calray. Uh, which are basically providing some type of an operating system that is going to run on any device so that the device uh, 
can work together in order to uh, you know create to in order to federate all the processing power and all the storage power across all devices to to do interesting stuff. I mean, I think that's kind of uh, the, the future, and that's where all the um, all the um, all the action is going to be, and, and all the valuation are going to be. What do you think is more of a limitation in terms of hardware? Is it compute or is it storage? Uh, good, good question. Uh, at this point, I would say it's more compute than storage. Uh, uh, but uh, you know, it's it's all a matter. If you look at uh, if you look at uh, if you look at uh, how technology evolved, right? So it's a combination of bandwidth, uh, storage, and compute. And so, uh, and so you always have those breakthroughs, right? So cost of networking goes down, something happens. Cost of compute goes down, something happens. Cost of, uh, of storage goes down, something happens, right? So, uh, so uh, it, it's all a matter of, um, of uh, looking at, uh, you know, what's happening now. Um, and uh, if I look at what's happening now, I mean, the cost of compute is, uh, is, at the right, uh, is at the right place. The cost of storage is... Uh, is definitely at the right at the right place and cost of bandwidth as well, uh, especially if you look at those um, at, at at the edge. So I would say um, I would say um, yeah, uh, lim limitation would be more uh, more cost of compute than cost of storage at this point. But maybe wrong. What about you? What do you think? I think today the biggest impediment is bandwidth. More for sure, so. I, for I, sure. I think it's, there's so much capacity in terms of compute and storage. And part of but the, the question behind the question is, uh, do you think we'll solve the bandwidth problem faster than we'll solve the compute and storage problem? I think uh, I think we are uh, with five G. So you you know it's uh, it, uh, it's uh, it's always um, G's that are the best ones, right? So uh, uh, right now we're doing five G. So uh, you know probably the problem is going to be solved with with six G. Five uh, G is kind of uh, is kind of the the first step to something bigger. Uh, so uh, yeah, so you know, probably the next uh, the, within the next ten years, right? We're going to see what we need, but five G is, is a good first step. Well, you and I remember a time when we didn't even measure bandwidth in terms of Gs, so uh, <laughs> we made a lot of progress already. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I remember carrying a, a two-way uh, Nextel radio around in my pocket that uh, was was operating on a proprietary IDEN network. You know, we, we, we've come a long way. Yes, 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 absolutely. Now, you and I offline were having conversation about DevOps and kind of new patterns of software development. And we were talking about impediments related to hardware, bandwidth, et cetera. Um, to what extent do you think our ability to generate high quality software at scale and at, and at speed, how much is that an impediment to be able to introduce some of these new services? I mean, uh, no doubt that uh, no doubt that uh, uh, DevOps uh, is uh, is a place where you will need a, a lot more uh, innovation uh, in order to get to where we need to be when uh, when we have those uh, when we have those uh, distributed uh, device uh, network of device uh, happening everywhere. So um, so uh, I would think that uh, the level of complexity of DevOps is gonna is gonna increase. Uh, of magnitude uh, with edge computing, so uh, so it, it's going to be a, a limiting factor uh, in the in the future. Uh, for in the future, it's already it already is, and you know of, 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 obviously you have companies like Insight Riders that are 
you know, kind of providing the next layer, the next level of, uh, of DevOps uh, for, um, for the company moving forward. But uh, you're going to have to manage AI, you're going to have to manage security, you're going to have to manage privacy. And there are so many things that you need to manage as that are going to be included in, a, in what you need to do for a, from a DevOps standpoint, that it's going to be, that it's going to be, you know, more complex rather than less. Thank you for the plug for Insight Finder. <laughs> now, you're welcome <laughs> that was that was not a sponsored plug by the way now, absolutely one of, not <laughs> one of the dirty secrets in the devops community is that operators have been forced to behave like developers by essentially treating infrastructure as code much more rapidly than developers have been forced to kind of own the life cycle of their code in operations do you agree with that? And to what extent, if you do agree, is it is it is it important that developers shoulder their end of the burden to to uh, to own the life cycle of their code? Well, I mean, it's kind of interesting you say that, right? Because in my in my company, uh, all the engineers are very co very conscious about DevOps, right? So so uh, so so the the notion of uh, I mean, the code is being built so that it's uh, it's it's easy to uh, it's easy to manage and uh, and and deploy on the upside. So uh, I would think that um, uh, I would think that I mean, especially in the future, right? That that DevOps is going to be completely integrated integrated in the thinking of developing a, developing a piece of software. That uh, the ability to uh, to maintain it, the ability to um, uh, to uh, de to deliver it uh, where it needs to be is going to be very important. So so I would say that uh, I would say that software is going to I mean software developers are going to have to uh, you know at least understand what the issues of um, what the issues of uh, developing and maintaining their software are moving forward. So your team at Topio is ahead of most teams. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's being run by somebody who uh, is coming from the, ops, from the ops world. So he's very conscious. That it's, it's interesting to see them. And it's very, uh, it's, 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 I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I mean, I'm, uh, you know, we, we, when I show you the amount of code that we, that, uh, that we've been able to develop with such a small team, people are usually amazed. And it's because we, we have this, uh, we have this thinking that uh, you know we 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 are thinking about the code when we're writing code around how it's going to be maintained and 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 uh, and uh, and uh, and, uh, and uh, delivered uh, across the board. So it's very important. Well, I too am biased coming from the the world of infrastructure, but I'd say that outside of the software teams developing software for infrastructure management. I still think most of the world develops using waterfall methodologies. And when you say something like you write it, you own it to a developer, they uh, turn pale white. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, they, they, it's a little bit like I remember when I was at Stanford Business School, right? I had the, uh, I was uh, at the Sloan program, which is a program, the one-year program for executives. And uh, I was uh, I was talking to, to the vice dean and he was telling me, why do you need this? Because you have assistants that can uh, that can um, 
that can uh, do that for you. And I, I told him, I said, you know, with the internet, uh, in 10 years, we, we won't have assistant anymore. So we, I mean, uh, 20 years later, we still have assistant anymore, but, uh, but we are doing more and more stuff by ourselves. And I think uh, this is what's going to happen to software developers as well is they, they need to be able to take uh, they need to be able to take more on and and uh, and understand that it's not only about um, about uh, the, the the customer, but it's also about the entire value chain around the software that are their customers. So in a way, DevOps is one customer as uh, as another one as another one, and they should be uh, taken care of the same way. Completely agree, and I think uh, the next few years we're going to see a rapid rapid uh, transition. Absolutely. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. There's no right answer, but I'm, I'm eager to get, uh, get your knee-jerk response here. So we, we talk on this show a lot about professions that are likely to be automated out of jobs. So of these three, which, uh, which do you think will, will be eliminated by AI first? Real estate agents, stockbrokers, or truck drivers? So truck drivers, stockbrokers, real estate agents. So... I would say um, truck driver first um, uh, because uh, again, it's right. Uh, driving is very mechanical, so uh, so so I think it's going to happen first. Then uh, I would say uh, stock brokers, like the the the, the, st the traditional stock broker, right? The guy the guy who buy and sell, uh, so which is basically creating market mechanism. That that one is going to disappear. Real estate uh, brokers, those people have uh, have a lot more. Um, I mean, in order to make a sale, it's very uh, it uh, it has to um, it has it's uh, it's very uh, emotional, so very human like. Uh, so um, so you're, I, I would bet you're going to need real estate brokers far more than stock brokers and truck drivers. I think Vlad from Robinhood. Would uh, would disagree with your assessment about tr truck drivers well, before stockbrokers. <laughs> well, well, you know, it's kind of uh, it's kind of, it depends on the definition you give to stockbrokers, right? So if it's uh, it's it's really about the mechanical aspect, right? So there are stockbrokers that are really uh, you know connected with their customers. Those ones are going to be very difficult to displace by uh, by AI. So. What do you think is one technology? that will be commonplace at work in 2030 that today would just seem like science fiction? Well, I mean, depend on what you're saying, right? So, uh, you, you know, like, uh, um, I mean, do you believe, I mean, do you think uh, augmented reality glasses are, uh, are science fiction today? Or do you think it's, uh, it's already there in a way? Well, in Silicon Valley, we lived through that awful chapter with Google Glass, yep. where you know they essentially became a reason to mock someone in a bar. Uh, yep. So I don't know, but I, but I've heard in domains like uh, surgery or you know other other you know manufacturing facilities uh, using augmented reality, you know, with in, in, embedded lenses is commonplace. So. Um, I, uh, think I, I think I would I, I would tend to say that's not science fiction, even though it's not broadly adopted. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so I mean, for me, augmented reality glasses is something that is going to happen within the next five, six, five, five, five to ten years for uh, for um, for work for sure. Uh, the other one that I think is going to happen that may maybe a little bit more uh, science fiction is holograms. 
Um, I mean, it's uh, the, the cost of holograms is uh, is pretty expensive right now, uh, but it's gonna it's it's just a matter of driving the the technology curve to get to where it needs to be. Um, do you do you see autonomous vehicle being science fiction right now, or do you see yes. it? Uh, yes. So autonomous vehicle, I think, is going to happen before uh, 2030. So, I mean, depending which one, right? So at least uh, truck driving on uh, on freeways uh, is going to happen for sure. Um, I mean, we're going to see a lot more robots that are moving around us in the next ten years. A few weeks back, we had a gentleman named Evangelos Smoudis from Synapse Partners on the show. And he's written two books on autonomous driving. And I was actually surprised at how bearish he was. I asked him a similar question about 2030. Uh, and I, I think to your point, it depends on what you call autonomous driving. If it's exactly uh, you know, a golf cart on a, in a retirement community, I think that's very different from uh, yeah, exactly. a, a, a robo taxi you know, in, a, in an urban, in a densely populated urban area. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, and uh, I mean, I have to say that, uh, you know, the mood of people vary based on the market cap of Tesla. So right now, the market, the market, the market cap of Tesla is, is off the roof, right? So people are very, uh, very um, positive about autonomous vehicle. Now, if the market cap, you know, starts going down, maybe, maybe we are going to see things differently. Um, I mean, uh, I have to say, if you look at uh, comp um, companies like Waymo, uh, if you look at Mobileye, if you look at uh, all, all, all the different technologies, all of the different technology companies that are being built, they are, make, they are making uh, progress uh, on a regular basis. And so uh, I'm uh, just in the same way, I was not seeing autonomous vehicle at all at the beginning of the 2010 timeframe, right? I'm, I'm not... Um, um, I don't think, I mean, people are not seeing it, but I think it's going to happen within 10 years. Between the two of us, I think we have uh, well over, I think, five decades in and around Silicon Valley. <laughs> but, uh, I, I say that with, with a sense of pride. Uh, yep. uh, what's one thing that uh, you would like to change about the culture of Silicon Valley? I mean, I have to say there is nothing to change <laughs> at this point, right? To be to be honest, I see Silicon Valley having achieved escape velocity, uh, and they won't be challenged anytime soon, except by China. Uh, I mean, they uh, the amount of money that is pouring in, the amount of um, of um, of um, of um, um, of, of talent that is available, the amounts of mentoring that is uh, uh, that is also available for those talent to to deliver. I mean, everything is now being very professionalized with uh, with incubators like YC or the Alchemist, um, and and so uh, so um, so I would say you know maybe we can talk about diversity, maybe we can talk about including more. Uh, uh, Latinos or African American community, uh, we could we could think about things like that. But overall, uh, you know, I see many more people, many people living and moving in other areas in the United States. And I think it's a good thing. I think uh, we need more innovation in Texas. We need more innovation in Florida. And that doesn't mean that those those states are going to be able to compete with Silicon Valley just because because of who Silicon Valley is. And uh, and and. Um, there is still a lot of value, you know, locked in private company in Silicon Valley. So, you know, if those people were not leaving, we would not be able to have restaurants, grocery stores, hospitals, because, you know, the people working in those industries would have to, uh, you know, uh, spend three hours or four hours commuting one way 
to uh, to afford the cost of living. So, um, so I think the other thing I would like to say about about that is, uh, um, you know, the world is changing, right? So, uh, I mean, you, you're seeing, and especially uh, since Trump, you're seeing uh, Europe, Asia, India, and the USA, you know, kind of splitting themselves. So. The, the world of the unique internet that you had in, uh, in the 2000 timeframe uh, has completely is now disappearing and is becoming very fragmented. So, um, and Silicon Valley will have to compete against China because uh, I think China is kind of the, the, the place where there is a, a probably at least, uh, at least the same amount of innovation as Silicon Valley as any other place in the world. And they cannot do that by themselves, right? So they, they keep, uh, they need to keep building very strong connection from from Europe with Europe right now, and if if they don't do that, uh, you know the, the, they are going to be limited in terms of their uh, in terms of their their, their market access uh, compared to what they were like what, what they had like what 20 years or even even 10 years ago. I think it may not be good for the price or for the appreciation rate of my my house, but I think for the sake of the, the state of global entrepreneurship, I would like to see us be able to export the, you know, the, the, the magic that has happened in Silicon Valley anywhere. And increasingly yeah, exactly. over the last year, yeah, I feel like whether it's talent or education or resources or capital, I am increasingly questioning that Silicon Valley has any kind of monopoly on any of those. But they, they don't need a monopoly. That's the, that's the thing, right? Is that they, you, you don't need, a, you don't need a, mono, a monopoly anymore. I mean, there is no need for, uh, they, they, they just have their ecosystem. The ecosystem of Silicon Valley is thinking about things that uh, nobody else thinks about. I mean, we, you, you know, they, they, we are thinking about going beyond Mars to uh, to go mine the the asteroids beyond Mars to uh, to uh, access uh, some of the metals that is available, rare metals that is available there. I mean, you should you, you should see. I mean, the amount of thinking that is ongoing and the amount of entrepreneurship uh, that is being that is being sought through, and you're not seeing that anywhere else in the world. Uh, and so. And, and that's the basic of, um, of entrepreneurs is to think big and then to put the money uh, to um, the money at, 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 uh, at work to make that happen. And, you know, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. Um, it's going to happen. I'm, I'm hoping and I'm, I, 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 I want it to, I want more innovation center like Silicon Valley, but, uh, but the size and scope and scale that Silicon Valley is at right now is, uh, is mind blowing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is. It is. We have a pretty insurmountable lead, but I would love to see us stamp out versions of Silicon Valley around the world. I think that would be yeah. Good for a good yeah. No, I mean, I, I mean, uh, I mean, it's gonna. It's happening, right? When you see uh, Elon Musk, uh, when you see uh, people like Elon Musk moving and and uh, and and willing to bet on uh, other ecosystem and taking the lead on those ecosystem to to be. Uh, uh, to, uh, to to make those ecosystems more like Silicon Valley. I think, A, as you said, uh, it's good, right? That's what it needs to happen, and it's good, and, and it's it's good for Silicon Valley to be challenged in a way. And and so, um, so, so yes, uh, I'm, um, I'm excited about that. It's going to, it's going to democratize innovation. It's going to make it, uh, it's going to make it more palatable to a lot more people. So I, I think that's the right thing to do. 
Amen. I'm with you. <laughs> uh, believe it or not, Philippe, we're, we're bad out of time, but I got I to gotta get, get in one last question. It's one of my favorites. So you, you've accomplished so much. What, what's your advice for a younger version of Philippe? So, um, so I think for me, for me, the, the world is accelerating uh, and is, is, is going faster and faster. So, uh, and, and, it, and it's doing that at a breathtaking pace, right? So what you need to do is, uh, you know, younger Philippe, what he, knows, what he needs to do is he needs to set himself up to be constantly learning from everything, everywhere. Uh, we know we now have the opportunity to learn from everybody around the world. So uh, do not limit yourself to what language, one language and one culture. You know, the world is your, uh, is your oyster. Um, um, embrace it, uh, accept, uh, accept the diversity of, uh, of, um, of uh, thinking. Uh, you know, I mean, one of the things that I found uh, very, that I find very disturbing in the United States right now is the fact that we, we are not accepting uh, each other, right? So the people, the people are thinking differently and because they are, think, they are thinking differently, they are, uh, they, they are not like or, or sometimes hated, right? So, uh, I mean, do not take that mindset. I mean, the world is your oyster. People are thinking uh, about things differently, understand how they are thinking and, uh, uh, and adjust to uh, what you do in order to, uh, in order to be successful. And then, uh, uh, you know the future is in front of you, so do not look, do not look behind, right? Look in front of you and become successful at what you're doing. Uh, and at this point, to be honest, uh, when I'm when I'm looking at where I was 20, 30 years ago, when I'm looking at where I am now, and where I, when I'm looking at the at the pace of acceleration, I, I would think sky is the limit. And that is how we define a growth mindset. Beautifully said. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, Philippe, uh, I wish we had more time. We could we could go on all day. This is this is great. I hope you'll come back and do another version of this at some point. Would that, would that be okay? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you're asking all the right questions. So I'm more mm -hmm. than happy to come back and talk to you more. <laughs> uh, I love it. This has been so much fun. Uh, but for this week, we got to sign off. This is Dan Turchin, your host of AI and the Future of Work. Back next week with another fascinating guest.